Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. So there's an old translation of verse 78 that I read for you in Luke chapter 1. What I read in the ESV reads, Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. But older versions read, When the day spring from on high visits us. When the day spring from on high visits us. And one of the great Christmas hymns, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, alludes to that in its second stanza when it says, O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. I think that's a beautiful line from a beautiful song here in Luke's gospel. And that verse captures for us really the entire idea of advent. The word advent means coming, coming. It's a time where we're waiting as God's people on the second coming of Jesus and where we're celebrating as God's people the first coming of Jesus. This week I, uh, I had a nightmare um, about an earlier experience in my life as a child. My parents were gone for a weekend and I was probably 10 or 11 years old and uh, one of my mom's best friends come, came and watched us for the weekend and the Friday night she let us watch a movie that was terrifying. And I don't remember anything about it. I think God has been gracious in blocking most of the movie out of my memory. But all I remember is trying to go to sleep on my living room floor with my brothers in our sleeping bags and pillows and covers as this movie was winding down and being absolutely petrified. I was so scared. And I remember turning away, facing the opposite direction of the TV as the movie was turned off and the lights went down and it was time to go to sleep and not being able to go to sleep eventually, but waking up in the middle of the night thinking of nothing but the horrors of this movie. And I was unable to go back to sleep. The rest of the night, I waited until daybreak. And it was one of the longest nights of my young life at that point. And that experience, I I don't know if you've had experiences like that, it captures for us, in some ways, what Advent is about. Advent is about waiting in the darkness for the day spring from on high to appear. That's a picture of the world that we're living in. We're waiting on daybreak in the middle of a dark world. This song that I just read for you from Luke 1 is written and sung by a man named Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of the guy we looked at last week, John the Baptist. He's the husband of Elizabeth. And Zechariah understood what it was like to wait. He understood what it was like to wait 
because when we read about him in Luke chapter 1, he's an old man, and his wife Elizabeth is an old woman, and they've been barren. They've been unable to have children. But late in Elizabeth's life, God, via an angel, told Elizabeth, you can read about this in the early parts of Luke 1, that she's going to have a son, and his name is going to be John. And the angel Gabriel says that they're going to have an answer, right, for their waiting and their hoping. But Zechariah, although Luke calls him a righteous man, doesn't believe Gabriel's words. And so he is struck mute by the angel for the entirety of the pregnancy. And in verse 57 of chapter 1, Elizabeth gives birth, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, in faith, insist that the name of this boy is going to be John, even though all of his friends and family are saying, no, he should be Zechariah Jr. That's what you should name him. They say, no, his name's going to be John. And then Zechariah's mouth is opened for the first time in almost a year, and he immediately sings this song, which is also a prophecy. So this song called the Benedictus by Christians throughout the centuries, is a testimony to the hope of the coming of Jesus after our patient and sometimes frustrating waiting. You know, Zechariah is a lot like us. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian trying to follow Jesus, my guess is that you find yourself to be a mixture. You're a mixture of sinful unbelief and doubt on the one hand and expectant hope and faith on the other hand. That's what Zechariah was like. And his beautiful song is filled with great biblical themes that are worth our reflection during Advent. And so we want to just survey this song this morning, and I want to look at it by showing you three crucial themes or three crucial words that Zechariah sings about, and that'll be our outline for the day. Here's the three big themes, visitation, salvation, preparation. Visitation, salvation, preparation. That's what Zechariah sings about, and that's what the Spirit is teaching us about this morning. So first, visitation. That's the first theme. And the word visit is found in verse 68 and verse 78 at the beginning and the end of the song. It's like a bookend, right? And that's a very significant word in the Old Testament. In the story of Scripture, when God visits his people, It's usually for one of two reasons when he visits the world. He's either coming to judge or he's coming to save. For example, if you read Genesis, when God comes and visits the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to see what's going on there, you know that God is visiting them in righteous judgment. And if you go to the next book of the Bible, Exodus, you'll read in the very early chapters that God comes to visit his people as they are slaves in the land of Egypt. And we know from reading that great story that that visitation is God coming to rescue. It's God coming to redeem and save his people. The point is when you read about God visiting the world, it's something to be anticipated. It's something to prepare for. And what Zechariah is doing here is singing about the ultimate and the greatest visitation of God. The great theologian Johnny Cash has a song called When the Man Comes Around. And one of the lines in that song goes like this. Tell Armageddon, no shalom, no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise man will bow down before the throne. And at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. It's a great Advent song, actually. We're waiting on the man to come around. That's what Advent is about. It's about God visiting us. 
Advent is about God putting skin on, about God becoming a human, just like us in every way except without sin. Advent is about God coming to us. The mystery and the beauty of Jesus' first coming is that God came as a fragile, helpless, human baby. But that baby, at the same time, had another nature that was divine. And at one and the same time, he's both fragile and weak and ruling and sustaining the universe. And Zechariah understands here, after what God has taught him in the last nine months. Remember, he's had a lot of time to reflect (laughs) because he hasn't been able to talk. He understands that this visit is God's great visitation of mercy. That's what we read about in verse 78. The tender mercy of our God is visiting. It's a visit of light and truth. Jesus' birth is compared here to the sun rising in the east after a long, dark night. Advent is about God visiting us. You know, that is such an essential point. If you want to understand what the real God is like. If you want to understand the essence of the Christian faith, then you have to grasp in your heads and in your hearts that Christianity in this way is uniquely true and uniquely beautiful. You know, in most religions, people meet God or gain access to God by, say, taking a pilgrimage to visit him. For example, in Islam, one of the five pillars of Islam, and devout Muslims all must do this at least once in their lives, is take a pilgrimage to Mecca to meet God there. That's a great example of what religion is about. Religion is about how we can gain access to God, who wants to see our efforts and our eagerness. So practically... If you, in 21st century San Antonio, view God in that way, you'll go to church and you'll try your best to be worthy. And you might even listen to this sermon because you want to visit God and make sure you're all together in the spiritual area. But the gospel, Christianity, actually is the exact opposite of that. Christianity is not about you going to visit God. It's about God coming to visit us. Christianity inverts that well-known religious theme of the truly devout taking a pilgrimage to be with God. Christianity tells us the story, rather, of God taking a pilgrimage to be with us. God is the great visitor for whom we are to prepare our hearts. God comes to us in the gospel. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. That is a big picture of grace. In the gospel, God approaches people who are unworthy and he loves them despite their sin. He doesn't wait for us to approach him with our own worthiness. You see, Christmas is not about our striving. The gospel is not about our striving. It's about God saving. And that really takes us to the next point in this song. We see the theme of visitation and secondly, we see the theme of salvation. 
Zechariah is very clear in the lyrics of this very old Christmas carol that God visits us for a particular purpose. Verse 68, he has visited and what? Redeemed. He's redeemed his people. Verse 69 and 71, to save us from our enemies. Verse 72, to show us mercy. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation. Verse 78, again, the tender mercy of God will visit us. Here's the point. God comes into the world as a helpless human child in the person of Jesus Christ for one purpose, the purpose of rescuing you from the greatest enemy you have. For the purpose of delivering you. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. And each verse in this song really has some really deep Old Testament imagery in its background. And we can't cover it all, but let me just give you one example. Look there in verse 69. Zechariah sings that God has raised up a horn of salvation, a horn, a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? A horn was a common image of power, of power in the Old Testament. Now, why? Well, it's because they were an agrarian Bedouin people. And one occurrence that they would have been familiar with would would be rams or goats fighting each other. If you want to get a picture of this, you can do something when you get home. You can YouTube Nubian Ibex. Nubian Ibex, I-B-E-X. That is a scene in Planet Earth, Volume 2. And it's about a three and a half minute YouTube clip that shows you these Iranian Ibex. And uh, the male ibexes, is it ibexes or ibexi? I have no idea. The male ibexes, we're going to go with that one, have, you know, they're kind of small elk, but they have these insanely massive horns. Like there's no perspective. It seems like they're twice as big as they should be. And in the video, there's this male ibex at a watering spring in the Middle East. And guess who, guess what the Middle East, the stream is full of? It's full of female ibex. And um, two male ibex meet up, and as the narrator says, they want exclusive access to the females. They want exclusive access to the females, and so they decide they're going to fight each other. And the video captures this incredible fight. And you probably know where I'm going. They fight by ramming their horns together with an incredible amount of force. The power on display there is brutal. And insane, really. And that's exactly what we're to think of when we picture God making Jesus a horn of salvation. What we're to take away from that is that in the coming of Jesus Christ, listen, in the coming of Jesus Christ, God is powerfully working to bring redemption and salvation to his hurting and broken people. God is the one doing it. That's the whole point in this song. Who is the active participant in this song? It's God. We are passive. God is the one at work. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He raises up the horn of salvation. He has the power. He takes the initiative. He chooses to bestow grace. He comes to us. Notice verse 71. He comes to save us from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. In other words, the the powerful oppressors of the people of God will one day be demolished. 
as a result of the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that would have been great comfort of the people of God in the Roman Empire when this was written, when they were abused and subjected to great persecution. And you know what? That idea is a comfort today to millions of brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are oppressed by the mighty and the strong because of their faith. Though they suffer now, this text tells us God will one day make all things new and right every wrong with perfect and holy justice. He's going to save us from our enemies. However, the primary oppressor And the primary enemy, which Zechariah makes clear in verse 77, verse 78, is our own sin. It's our own sin. Jesus came, you see, as a horn of salvation, as a powerful redeemer to forgive people of sin. Your main problem in life, we say this all the time here, your main problem in life is not political persecution or oppression or the opposing party in power right now that you like. Your main problem in life is not economic poverty. Your main problem is not a lack of education or a lack of access to societal helps. Your main problem, according to the story of the Bible, is the problem of sin. That's what we need redemption from the most. And that's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us from the bondage that we're all in by definition, by nature, to sin. That's the main point of Christianity. That's the main point of Advent. Do you understand that? Really, do you understand that your biggest problem is your own indwelling sin? What does that even mean? Sin is such a greatly misunderstood word, both by Christians and those who aren't Christians. And we say this all the time, too. Sin is not primarily an action. It's not primarily something you do. Sin is a condition. Sin is the condition of all of our hearts that makes us want to be God. The reason that you are so often frustrated or angry or afraid or vindictive is because, to some degree, you want to be in control. And you want to rule, but you cannot because you are not really God. So sin brings all of these other consequences. It brings shame. It brings guilt. It brings perverted, delusional thinking. It brings wicked behavior. It brings selfishness and pride, etc., etc. It causes great pain and unhappiness in your life and in this world. And that, friends, that is what Jesus and Jesus alone can rescue you from. How does he do that? How does he rescue us from sin? Well, sin, because it is rebellion against a good and holy God, demands punishment. It demands punishment from a just king, which God is. So either we will be punished for our sin and rebellion, or someone else will be punished in our place. And the good news, the gospel, is that God sent Jesus Christ to take the punishment of sin that we deserve on the cross so that we, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're from, no matter how far away from God we think we may be, so that we can be forgiven. As Zechariah says in 77, God bears the penalty of rebellion against him so that he can be just in punishing sin rightly and also merciful in forgiving us. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that today? Jesus Christ visited this world as God incarnate to save us from the great oppressor, sin itself. And we are called this morning in this very song to prepare to receive that message. The Holy Spirit speaks through the word and he's asking you, he's inviting you to become an active participant in this message. Let's look at that thirdly. We've seen visitation, salvation, and then lastly, preparation. Really, beginning in verse 76 through the end, this song becomes a prophecy as well. Zechariah is here singing about his son, John the Baptist, who we looked at last week. And we know from last week that John's job was to prepare the way for Jesus to come, right? And that's exactly what Zechariah is prophesying about his newborn son here. Verse 76, you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. And how does John do that? How did he prepare the way? Well, we saw this last week. He tells us very simply to repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of God is near. He tells us to get ready, to get prepared for the king to come. When I was a student at Baylor University, I've told this story before, but uh, it's worth telling again because I think it's a good illustration. Um, When I was a student at Baylor University, Baylor's a Baptist school, as many of you may know. And uh, my freshman year, I lived in the dorm, Penland Hall, room 209. And uh, uh, one time a week, our female students allowed to visit the male dorms. And that is Sunday afternoons from about 1 to 4 or something like that. That's what it was like when I was there. And as you might expect, freshman boy dorms at Baylor or any other university are uh, horrible living conditions. Uh, it, it's, it's not a pretty picture. And, uh, but on Sundays, every week, about noon, we would start preparing a little bit. We might clean up some dirty socks or underwear. We might throw away that old molding towel. Normally, you would need like a gas mask to walk through Penland Hall in a healthy way. I'm probably going to get some form of horrible disease later on because I showered in those showers for a full year. It's a nasty place to live, but on Sundays... Friends, every week, 1230, we were getting ready for visiting time because that's when the ladies would come in and uh, we would woo them in incredible ways, I'm sure. But that's an illustration for another sermon. And uh, we prepared because we were eager and expectant and wanted to be ready. That's exactly what John the Baptist's message is. He's asking you, and Advent really is asking you to prepare, to get ready for the king to come. Just like the ancient people of Israel needed to prepare for the king's coming, so we need to prepare. So the message of this song is still relevant. It's still meaningful. It's still life-changing. The way to prepare is by recognizing your sin, by recognizing your need for forgiveness, and by turning in faith to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to understand Advent, to understand Christmas, to understand Christianity, to know the real God. How can you prepare this morning? Whether you're a believer or not, all of us can do what joy to the world calls us to do. Let every heart prepare him room. Two very simple things. First, repent of your sin. Acknowledge that you are a sinner, that you deserve God's displeasure, that you are 
self-centered and self-motivated and that you wanted to be the king of your life, acknowledge that and tell God you're sorry and that you intend to make him king. Secondly, believe the gospel that Jesus Christ was born into this world to do exactly what this very old song says, to bring forgiveness of sins, to bring redemption and salvation. Through his death on the cross, he is taking the punishment that you should have taken for your sin, for your pride, and for your rebellion, and he offers you complete pardon before God because God is merciful, because God loves you deeply. God takes the punishment on himself. And because he does that, anyone who trusts in Christ can have peace again with God. We can enter the kingdom. We can know life and light. Advent means that God has visited. God has visited his people in the birth of Jesus Christ to bring salvation. And it means that one day God will visit again. It's a summons for you to prepare to receive the gift that he freely offers. U2, one of my favorite bands. Johnny Cash and U2 in the same sermon, by the way. You're welcome. Uh, U2 redid a B.B. King song that's on one of their albums, and it's called When Love Comes to Town. And I'm just going to close by reading you a stanza from, it's probably not called a stanza, is it? A U2 song. It's probably a verse. Reading you a verse from that song. Here's what Bono sings. I was a sailor. I was lost at sea. I was under the waves before love rescued me. I was a fighter. I could turn on a thread. Now I stand accused of the things I've said. When love comes to town, I'm going to jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. Love has come to town in Jesus Christ's birth. And Jesus Christ calls you to turn away from yourself and to look to him in faith. Do you see your need? Do you see his provision? Do you feel the weight and the burden of your sin? Do you feel the freedom and the joy that he offers you through forgiveness? Believe in that message. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray.